Well, today we're starting a brand new series, something that's been on my heart for a long time, and this series is called Father Figures. Father Figures. When I was not doing well, trying to discover what church I wanted to go to uh, 10 years ago, looking for community, looking for hope, uh, my pastor, Pastor Philip, I went to a men's event at this church, and Pastor Philip said uh, this scripture Jesus said, when you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And he said, what if all uh, of God's people, specifically men, lived their lives this way, that when they encountered us as men, they might as well have encountered the Father God? And I remember thinking, that is all I want to do with my life. I believe God has called each of us. This is not gender-oriented. This is actually male, female. God has called each of us to resemble the Father. It's okay. She's already getting hit with the Holy Ghost. Already getting hit with the Holy Spirit. I ain't even started preaching yet. I ain't even started preaching yet. But um, I believe God wants us to represent the Father's heart, to resemble the Father, so that when people encounter us, they're encountering the Father. And I think so many times as church leaders, we have highlighted the preacher and not the Father Because we're so busy representing Jesus, we forget we're supposed to resemble Jesus. We are supposed to be like the Father so that when people encounter us, it's like they've met God himself. That is how familiar we're supposed to be to Jesus. And so I don't know how long we're going to stay in this series, Father Figures, but it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. I'm going to preach a message today called Daddy Issues. Daddy Issues, man. Daddy Issues. The enemy's trying to give the world daddy issues. He really is. Because when the enemy gives the world daddy issues, sometimes through our practical father, it makes it very difficult to relate to our spiritual father because he's attacked us with our natural father. And this has been a covert mission, not just in America, but all over the world. I want you to to hear this stat. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, 19.7 million children Almost 30%, one in four, live without a father in the home. Not just their biological father, no father figure. This number includes not a stepdad, not an adopted dad, not a biological father. There is not a male in the home for 20 million children. It's one of the greatest social ills facing America today. When you do not have a dad you are four times more likely to live in poverty, seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. And so I understand that I believe children are a blessing to the Lord, but but pregnant teens need a father, a father figure, or they're seven times more likely to, to be pregnant as a teenager. Kids are more likely to have behavioral problems, more likely to go to prison, two times more likely to commit a crime. Interesting enough, I looked up the definition between a pandemic and an epidemic, and an epidemic is a breakout, a a disease that breaks out in a region. A pandemic is when it crosses nations and countries. We are in the pandemic of fatherlessness right now as I preach to you. I remember preaching in in a youth Uh, event one time at a summer camp. And I told the story about how there was a guy in the Bible by the name of Jacob. 
And Jacob's name meant deceiver or heal. And Jacob gets a bad rap in the Bible because he was a liar and a deceiver. And one of the things Jacob lied about is he pretended to be his older brother. In that culture, the father only gave the blessing to the older brother. And so Jacob pretended to be his older brother Esau to to trick his father Isaac into giving him the blessing. And so the Bible says that his, his brother Esau was a hairy man, so he, he put goat hair. I like Jacob. He was committed. He glued goat, goat hair to his arms, and, and he, he glued hair so that his father, who was blind, unable to see, would, would bless him instead of his brother. And even though Jacob gets a bad rap, it makes me think that maybe what we call Jacob is unfair because the reality is that in our natural lives, if some of us wanted to get a blessing from our father, we'd have to trick him into it. We'd have to lie to him to get him to do it. And so Jacob had these daddy issues and Jacob actually had so many daddy issues. They manifested in so many areas in his life. But what I love about God is God had to give Jacob a new identity. If you have a daddy issue, God wants to give you a new identity. But here's the awesome thing that God gave Jacob a new identity. He said, you are no longer called Jacob. You are called Israel. But yet throughout the Jewish culture, When God refers to himself, to people who have come down the line from Jacob, he says something interesting. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Wait a minute. I thought you changed his name to Israel because Jacob was shady. But yet when you recall about who you are the God of, you say, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm not the God of Israel, I'm the God of Jacob. I want to remind you and I that when God says he's your God, he will pronounce he's the God of the you you used to be, not the you you are today. Oh, I'm preaching already. I'm preaching. I thought you was going to drop your book because that was a word. Did you hear what I just said? God, when he professes through all of heaven that he's your God, he is willing to claim This is going to heal somebody's daddy issues. He's willing to claim the old you. Not the new you. Not the you that comes to church every week. He's willing to say, I'm the God of the old you. Even though I've given you new identity. Even though I've given you grace. Even though you're walking in truth. I want to remind all of the world that even if that man, even if that woman was the way that they used to be, I'm still their God. It's a beautiful revelation that can heal what happens when when we don't have what we deem to be access to a great father. Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 16 says this, therefore, since we are surrounded, first of all, Hebrews chapter 11 lists a whole bunch of awesome people. I mean, amazing people. And then has the audacity to see therefore. Like, have you read the Bible? Have you read like the story of Daniel? It's like a comic book. It's like the Avengers, like Elijah doing all this crazy stuff. And he lists all this stuff in Hebrews chapter chapter 11. And then it says, therefore, since we, all of us are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, the people you read about in the Bible, they're not just people that God could use. They're supposed to be witnesses about how God can use you. And he says, since we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. 
not before someone else, not before anyone else we're comparing ourselves to. Let us run the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and protects our faith or perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Wait a minute. God was happy on the cross? Because of the joy set before him? So because Jesus knew that his death on the cross would give his father relationship with you and I, he could see the joy even though he felt the pain. Do you know how profound that is? I'm telling you, somebody's going to get healed and encounter the father in heaven today. Somebody's going to get healed of some daddy issues because the Bible says that God uses all things for good according to, uh, for those who are called according to his purpose. We always stop. We always never... God uses all things for good. Somebody just be smoking weed. God uses all things for good. That's not what that verse means, man. There's grace, but that's not what that verse means. If you finish it, it says God uses all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And it tells us what the purpose is. That Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Did you hear what I just said? So God uses everything you go through to shape you into a child of God. And Jesus was the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. You ever tried to be the good kid? Come on, you know, I was a good kid growing up. I was a good kid. Like growing up, I tried to be the good kid. You ever tried to be the good kid? It's like, it's kind of weird because it's like, you're trying to get your parents' affirmation. And I want you to say, how many people are the good kid? If you're in here, who was the good kid? Okay, so Nelson, Pastor Nelson was a good kid. I want you to just break this down. He was a good kid. Can you imagine his dad asking Nelson, the good kid, to give up his life, that the bad kids might have their relationship restored with the father? Like, so it wasn't just that Jesus came to die for our sins. Jesus was God's perfect son and endured and gave up his life so that God could have more kids. The cross was literally an adoption agency. Like, it's not just like Jesus died for our sins. No, the cross was an adoption agency. And the Bible says we are no longer slaves, but sons. It took you from an enemy to a friend, from a slave to a son or a daughter. Literally, Jesus on the cross was signing the paperwork in his own blood for God the Father to redeem the father you never had so you could be the father you never had to the world around you. Do you... He said he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor besides God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. You got to get this in your head. Hostility Christ endured from sinful people for sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you haven't not yet given your own lives in your struggle against sin. And then here's this crazy, crazy verse that is like, 
unbelievable in verse five. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his children? Here's the encouraging words. Are you ready? My child, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. This is a quote from Proverbs where the Bible says God disciplines those he's delighted in. They're quoting Proverbs because this church is going through a really hard time and and they've been preached to that God is their father and they're starting to, the church in Hebrews is starting to think that God must not love me. This must be punishment because I'm doing something wrong. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to the people of Hebrews and quotes Proverbs that God disciplines those he's delighted in. That's the original word. So if I'm going through a hard time, if I'm going through a season that makes me cry myself to sleep, if I'm going through something that is the most challenging thing in my life and God is allowing it, it's not because he's disgusted, it's because he's delighted. I can do something with this challenging time to shape them and mold them to be more like me. A.W. Tozer said this, there is nothing more important about you than what comes to your mind when you think about God. I want you to write this down. You have to look at God as your father, and here's why. Your perspective of God controls your intimacy with God, and your intimacy with God determines your resemblance to God, and your resemblance to God makes your work for God fulfilling and fruitful. I'm going to say that again. It's so important. Your perspective of God controls your intimacy with God and your intimacy with God determines your resemblance to God. Your resemblance to God makes your work for God fulfilling and fruitful. If you are not doing what you're doing for God in the image of God, you won't be happy with what you do for God. That's why we've made the church a corporate ladder and not a kingdom because we're not happy unless it's just, and I, I'm telling you right now, God, as a father, this is always the first step. Not you proving that you're amazing by what you do for God. God will tell you what you're going to do for him. Because he knows if he doesn't prophesy over you and you believe it, you won't be happy when you get it. It's so important. And I really think in the church right now, God is saying, I need you to look and resemble me. We often say different things that, The more I think about them, they're not theologically correct. Church, we're going to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Like Jesus needs a bunch of little hands and feet just flapping around trying to help people. There's nowhere in the Bible that Jesus asks you and I to be the hands and feet of Jesus. That's why we can argue and fight with each other because we're too busy trying to be the hands and feet. God says, no, you're the body of Christ, the whole thing. So sometimes we can be so busy being the hands and feet of Jesus, we no longer have the heart of our Father in heaven. David said, when God hired David, he didn't say, I'm looking for somebody to be my hands and feet. He said, I finally found a man after my own heart. Well, what heart did David have? He had the Father's heart. If you continue reading in this scripture, it says that God disciplines those he loves. I'm not talking about he brings you sickness and cancer. I'm not going to get into all like, well, what kind of discipline? I'm just saying God uses difficult times in our lives to shape us and mold us more into his image. 
I heard this one story of a, of a uh, someone who's, who's the person who does iron? Uh, what do they call an iron dude? Uh, blacksmith. 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 I'm black. I could have been a blacksmith. Is that a black dude who's a smith or is it like a, I don't know. Anyway, um, there's this blacksmith, right? And uh, I'm going to get an email for that one. But um, I read all of them. I love them. Uh, there was this blacksmith who was training another blacksmith apprentice and uh, they would drop the sword in the molten hot. Last week we talked about this is a fire season. They would drop the sword in the molten hot uh, uh, fire and they would bring it out and they'd drop it again and bring it out. And the story I heard goes, the apprentice asked the blacksmith, how do we know when it's done? How do we know when we don't have to put it in the fire anymore? And the, the blacksmith, the seasoned veteran said, well, I've come to know now that when I can see my reflection in the sword, it's done. So when I can see myself in the sword that I'm putting in the fire, I know it's done. I just want to prophesy over somebody. I think God's going to leave you in this tough season and he pulls you out of this tough season. And when he can see himself in you, he knows you're ready to come out of the tough season. I really believe that this is an act of love. My dad, one time, I had done something. We did a lot of crazy stuff when I was a kid. And I don't really remember any of the things my dad taught me. Like, my dad taught me a lot, but I don't remember specific lessons other than this one. I had done something terrible in the seventh grade. And um, my mom said that I couldn't go to the seventh grade sock hop, the winter little formal. Uh, man, it was amazing. They called it a sock hop back then. It was a school dance. If you don't know what a sock hop was, it's a school dance. So my mom said I couldn't go to the school dance, the seventh grade school dance. My dad gets home from work, and I'm not dressed for the dance. And he says, son, what happened? I got in trouble, can't go to the school dance. My dad goes and talks to my mom, and they have like a pretty intense discussion. And then my dad comes upstairs and says, son, get dressed. You're going to the dance. I said, mom said I can't go. He said, I've talked to your mom. You're going to the dance. My dad drops me off at the school. And I remember this like it was yesterday. We pulled around the back de- gate. You know, I used to have the balloons and all the painted signs for the school dance. I'm going to, I'm clean. I'm dressed sharp. I hear my favorite song playing from the gymnasium. That girl in poison. I'm ready to go in there like, ha, 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 ha. And my dad stops me. And I remember feeling irritated because my, my, does my dad not hear poison playing on it? What? Hey, son, I need to talk to you something. Dad, they're playing poison. Son, I need to talk to you about something. And he says, listen, son, I talked to your mom, and I normally wouldn't go against your mom's discipline. He said, but I always want you to remember this as a father. Never, never discipline your kids by taking away something you cannot give back. And I said, what do you mean, dad? And he goes, I could take away your TV, but you can get your TV back. I can take away you going outside, but you can go outside tomorrow. If I took away your seventh grade, your first seventh grade dance, there'll never be another one. And I cannot give that back. So I'm going to let you go to this dance. But tomorrow, no TV, and you can't go outside. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. We're in the gymnasium. like, "Ah, ah, ah, ah." And I didn't think about it till I became a dad one day. Never even thought about that until I gave birth to Bailey. And then I realized that really good fathers don't take things from their kids that they don't have a plan on giving back. And I want to encourage somebody that 
you might be having some heavenly daddy issues because in 2020, you feel like God has taken some things from you. You feel like you've lost your, your peace. You feel like you've lost your income. You feel like you've lost your hope. And, and God in his love, and this is a tough thing to understand, but God in his love does not plan on taking anything from his sons and daughters that he doesn't have a plan on giving back. Matter of fact, Jesus said this, the enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that you would have life and have it more abundantly. What is Jesus saying? That God the Father gives Jesus the authority to give you back what the enemy took. So we can actually take this time to to, to heal and, and be with God. And this is easier said than done. I mean, we, my wife, uh, was diagnosed with coronavirus and, and um, tested positive. And the first day where the test came back positive, we didn't know how sick she was going to get. And it was kind of weird. Like we consider ourselves a praying family, a faithful family. And it was tough because I didn't know, was I going to have to take care of the kids? And Christina got really sick. And Bailey was pretty upset about it because she's eight. So she knows what, what COVID is. And I remember I was putting her down to bed and she was crying. And she was like, how would God let mommy catch COVID? And I, it was a tough thing to answer. Like, what a great theological question. And I just, the, I, the, honestly, I felt the presence of God. And I told Bailey, God trusts good families with bad things. And from that moment on, I decided to have this perspective that God didn't give me a problem. He trusted me with one. And in that problem that he trusted me with, I realized in that two weeks how much my wife was actually doing in the home. And I'm trying to be more committed. God's molded me into a better dad. Like, honestly, bedtime and bath time is less stressful for me. I did it for two weeks straight. So God used that terrible thing to actually mold me into a better father. I'm more present at home than I was before. And I really believe that God trusts good Christians with bad things. Interesting enough, God says that he, uh, he's a good father, and uh, he's such a good father, even the song had to say it twice, that he's a good, good father. Like, it's, <laughs> this is serious, guys. He's like, he's good, man. If we don't get the point, say it twice. You know what I mean? Like, it's amazing. And I think that in order to, be, to encounter God as our father, we have to understand what it means to be a child of God. And when it says a child of God, here a child is just somebody young in our culture. What's a kid? You're a child before the age, under the age of 18. That's the only definition for a child in our social construct is under 18, you're a child. That's it. And a child in the Bible, when it says that God disciplines a child, it says this, that, and this is so important, that if you don't consider yourself a child of God, then God's not disciplining you. So if you feel far from God and you're having a tough season, it's not God. It's the devil or you. Because if it was God's discipline, right, you would already be a child of God. This is so important for you to understand. If you feel far from God and you're having a terrible life, it's either the devil or you. It's not God. God is not punishing you because you've strayed away from him. Here's how I know. It says God disciplines a child whom he loves. That's what Hebrews said. Are you following me? Tracking with me? God disciplines a child. And that word in the Greek 
in the Greek, the original word is not our social word of anybody under 18 or immature or whatever. It comes from a word technon, which means a child living in utter dependence moment by moment on the Lord. A child living in dependence, dependence. It's, it's a believer who is relying on God. And I really believe the greatest moment of maturity that you can have, you and I can have as believers, is when we move from relationship to reliance. And when you are relying on God, that makes you a child of God. So God disciplines those he knows will rely on him to get through. Any other thing, he would not discipline someone who doesn't know how to rely on him. And I think so many times we group hard times into the same, like, oh man, God's punishing me, God, because I made a mistake. No, if you're not relying on God, God would not discipline you because he needs to know that you will rely on him. If I rely on God, then God can trust me with a difficult situation that molds me into the image of the Father. So if I'm relying on God, he can say, you're almost there, one more, one more. And so many times we think that God is punishing us for doing something wrong. No, 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 everything you did wrong has been wiped clean by the blood of the lamb. So any season that you feel is punishment or discipline is not God's response to your sin. God's response to your sin was Jesus. The hard time that you're experiencing is God's response to your growth process. He knows it's going to shape you. He knows it's going to mold you. And we think, yeah, because we only get punished by our dads when, when we do something wrong, right? Matter of fact, this same scripture says this. Here's what's crazy. Think about this. Verse 7, Hebrews 12. As you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as his own children. Listen to this verse. Who ever heard of a child who's never disciplined by his father? So, Catch this, the writer of Hebrews is talking to some Christians and he's able to instantly connect them to their father in heaven with this phrase. Come on, guys. Have you ever heard of a father not being there and disciplining his children? You've never heard of it. He was talking to an audience in that culture that would have never heard of such a thing as, an or, as a father walking out on his family, being disconnected. So he was able to point him right to the father. Who's ever heard of a father? And they went, yeah, that's true. How many people do you know that don't have their father in their life or have disconnected relationships? So I can't get up here and say, you got to just trust your heavenly father. Come on, guys, who's heard of it? Who's ever heard of anybody that doesn't have a great relationship with their dad? We've all heard of it. And now it creates this longer journey because the enemy wants us to wander in the wilderness, creates this longer journey when we don't have our father in our lives. It's so important to understand. Gives us daddy issues and we feel like we can't trust God. We have to know that we can rely on God. And the enemy is constantly trying to make God seem as if he's unreliable. And I want to tell you, you can rely on God. And so many times we only want to rely on God to get us to the places we want to go, the people we want to be married to, the money we want to have. 
but no, I'm, I'm encouraging you to rely on God, not to just get you to, but to get you through this thing you are going through right now. Would I be a dad, bad dad if one of my kids fell and got injured? Am I a bad parent? I'm not a bad parent by the prevention of their injury. I'm a great parent if I comfort them in what happened. Like if I, my kid fell, am I a bad dad? No, of course not. But if I didn't show up, if I didn't walk them through that, then, then, then I'm not a great father. God's presence makes him a great father. Not just what he prevents, but his presence. We need to learn how to live in, in reliance on our father. And as we can live on reliance on father, it's going to shift things. It's going to change things in our church. It's going to change things in our world. Uh, I, I really believe that a child, one who is reliant on God, can handle anything that this world throws at them. Anything this world throws at them. I want to give you three things that must be thriving for you to have intimacy with your father as a child of God. And it comes from the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the, the Sabbath, and, and God's relationship with his people. The first thing that you have to have is a sacred space. The sacred space. The sacred space in the Old Testament was a holy of holies where the glory of God would dwell. And in the New Testament, when Jesus died, that sacred space has become the human heart. It is our heart. That's why the Bible says if you believe with your, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, it doesn't put intellectualism, doesn't put in your mind. So many times we can analyze something with our mind, but, but God's throne is on our heart as well as in heaven. And so our heart has got to be sacred space. And it brings it up in Hebrews 12, 15. Look after one another so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. Don't let bitterness and offense get in your heart. Not because what they did was right or wrong, but my heart, the space where Jesus lives, is sacred. I can't allow offense to just be commingling with Christ. I can't allow shame to commingle with Christ. I can't allow guilt to commingle with Christ. Do you know how much you would clean up your house if Jesus was coming over for dinner? He lives in your heart. So let him help you clean it up. He's trying to make your heart sacred. Even in Proverbs 4, verse 20. Through 23, it says, my son, this is a father talking to a son or a daughter. We always say in church, guard your heart. And I've said this before. We use it as a dating ver verse. Girl, you better guard your heart. <laughs> no, that's not what that verse means. It's not a dating verse. It's not a verse to keep someone out who's bad. It's, so it's a verse to keep something in. That's good. Listen to what it says. My son, my daughter, pay close attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So how do you guard your heart against offense towards your wife or your spouse or your friends or people in church? You got to have a word that you are guarding in your heart about them. Like sometimes we want a word for us, but if I get a word about Brianna or I get a word about Grant, then when Grant's actions don't line up with the word, I'm not protecting myself from Grant because, I, because I'm, I'm, I'm triggered. I'm protecting Grant's actions from what God told me in my heart about Grant. 
So I'm not allowing Grant's actions or Jet's actions or Nelson's actions to steal what God told me about them in my heart. This is why God gives you a word about your wife or a word about your husband before you marry them because he knows they're getting ready to do a whole bunch of stuff that doesn't live up to what he said. And therefore, you're like, girl, did you just talk to me like that? Babe, 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 I know you didn't. This locked up. What God said to me about my wife, Christina, is locked up in my heart. Man, my wife... Recently, she can say something to me. I'm on a roll right now. My wife right now can say something foul to me, and I'm guarding my heart against what the enemy is trying to tell me about my wife. If my wife makes me upset, as soon as she says something, like, just the key, just guarding my heart. God told me my wife is awesome. So I'm protecting what my wife does, right? Watch this. I'm protecting what God said about my wife from what my wife does when it doesn't line up with what God said. I'm not protecting myself from her. I'm protecting what God said from that. That's how you do it. That's, and you keep your heart, and it becomes a sacred space. The, the second thing that you need is sacred time. This is personal time with God and community time with other believers. The church loves to talk about murder. They love we're killing, we're killing babies, we're killing people. There's riot in the streets, people are dying. I get it. None of that stuff should be happening. I believe children are a blessing from the Lord. I believe that. I believe with all my heart, my two kids are a blessing, right? But you notice the Ten Commandments was given to a murderer? Moses had already killed somebody. And God stewarded the command of thou shalt not murder to a murderer. Isn't that weird? And then Moses came down off the mountain and read the commands to the Israelites. And it was like, don't worship any other gods. Don't attach things to my name. Don't take my name in vain. Uh, 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 you know, don't, you shall have another gods before me. And number four is, y'all need to rest. Sacred time. I just find it fascinating that God would say no idol worship. There's so many idols in America. No gods before me. We have plenty of gods. Universe, somebody out here burning sage, listen to this right now. Put that stuff out like there's one God. And then he says, honor your mother and father. Oh, wait a minute. So honor your mother and father is commandment number five, and thou shalt not murder is commandment number six. So the enemy said, remember the stat I made? I said, you are more likely to commit crime if you don't have a dad. So what the enemy does is he, he brings anxiety to the world, destroys commandment number four, strips young people of their dad so they have no dad to honor, and number six, murder is a default. Because most of the people who want to have an abortion don't feel they have a supportive father to help them raise the child. So when he comes after commandment number five and commandment number four, commandment number six is a given. And we think the battle is for life. No, the battle is for rest and a dad. That's why God put him in that order. Because if you don't have an idol before me and you have a mother and father that you honor and you're resting from your labor, then it is very unlikely that you would ever murder. And we have people marching down from the mountain of God, changing the order of the commandments. 
oh, this is kind of weird. I think this one should be here. And this one should be that. I honestly believe the number one problem in this nation is fatherlessness. Is systemic racism, racism real? Yes. But I grew up in the black community. And I was the only person with my dad in his house. People came over my house to be with my dad. It's the only one. I never knew any of my black friends. I know there are people out there that don't get jobs because they're black, but I've had some successful black friends. Like, they've done great things. I was the only person in my neighborhood that had a black kid that had their dad in the house. And I really believe if we don't address this through sacred time with each other so we can prepare to take in these people that don't have dads, of course there's going to be riots. Of course there's going to be looting. Of course there's going to be murder because the church don't rest. We don't rest. We can talk about murder while we burn out interns and volunteers and make them work so hard. Of course. God put them in that order because he knew if they got the first five, six through ten are probably, were probably good. Right? Third thing we're going to need, sacred space, our heart, sacred time. And the final thing is sacred identity, that we know that we're a son and daughter of God. I'm going to invite the worship team to come because we're going to close. We're going to pray for some people. Matthew, we need a sacred identity. Your identity, when you're a believer, is your son or daughter of the most high God. Your identity is not your career. Your identity is not your calling. Your identity is not your purpose. Your identity is not your sexuality. That's not your identity. What supersedes all of that is that you are a son and a daughter of a king, of God himself. And this is why I believe through this next season of preaching and leading that God is going to restore your relationship with your heavenly father and he's going to turn you into a father figure, someone who resembles him. I want you to lean into this verse real quick before we pray and close. Matthew 22, verses 17 through 21. Jesus is having a conversation with some religious people. And in verse 17, it says, the religious people said, tell us then, Jesus, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Because they knew if Jesus said no, that Caesar could like punish Jesus. But verse 18 says, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription or stamp? Whose image and whose inscription? Whose stamp? So it would have the image of Caesar and Caesar's stamp of approval. The image and the stamp of approval so people knew the coin was genuine. And they said, well, it's Caesar's. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Isn't that an interesting verse that he would say, hey, so whose image and whose stamp of approval is on the coin? They said Caesar's. Well, then give it to Caesar. Isn't his? I would have stopped there, but he said, no. So give to Caesar 
what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's? How do we know what to give to God? One of my biggest questions I get is, how do I know what God wants me to do? Should I do this? Should I do that? How do I know? He is giving us a clue in this verse. How you know what to give to Caesar is whose image is on the coin and his stamp of approval. How you know what you should do for God with God is when God's image is on your life and his stamp of approval as a father is on you as a daughter, then you will know. We got to stop asking God, hey, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? God's going to say, whose image is on you? Give to God what is God's. Don't you have my image? Don't you have my stamp of approval? Without my image, without my stamp of approval, you'll never know what to do. Stop asking me. He didn't say it's obvious. He said, whose image is on it? So when each and every one of you out there want to ask God in this season, God, what are you going to do? God, what do you want me to do? God, do you want me to move here, work here, do this? I feel like Jesus is saying whose image is on your life? Whose stamp of approval is on your life? And you might not realize that the heavenly father's stamp of approval is on your life because you're still trying to earn it from your earthly dad. You're still trying to earn it from your your boss. And I think your honest question is, whose image on this? I don't know. Whose inscription is on this? I don't know. So I'm going to pray right now. This is so important. God didn't let Jesus do a single act of ministry, a single act of ministry until he was baptized. And God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He gave him the image and the stamp of approval. And Jesus immediately began preaching, the kingdom of God is near. People are saying, we just need to focus on Jesus, all this stuff in the world, focus on Jesus and and on the kingdom. And we can't because people don't know that God approves. People don't know that they were made in the image of their father. So they can't focus. And I'm praying that for somebody right now, that you would know that you bear God's image and that God is using this tough season to make you more like him so that you would know what to do and that God is giving you a stamp of approval. And you might feel like Jacob today and God wants to renew you and change you, but God's going to still say he's the God of the old you. So Father in heaven, there's somebody um, just under the sound of my voice right now that uh, has practical dad issues, that has spiritual dad issues, and they're, the enemy's using this difficult season to make them think, God, that you don't love them and you're not for them. But God, we know that's not true. And so right now, Lord, we just receive that in our heart that that's not true. God, you are our father. And we're not being punished for our sins. Matter of fact, Jesus was punished for our sins. We're being shaped and molded by difficult circumstances so that when we have a question to God about what to do or where to go, God can just say, well, whose image is on your life? And we can say, Father, your image is on my life. And God, right now, no matter what somebody's done, I just pray they're coming into relationship with you by repenting of their sin and saying, I don't want the image of culture. I don't want the image of the world. I want the image of my father so I can know what to do and know how to pray and know how to be more like you. So that's you and you want to stop having the image of of earning the the approval of other people and you want to come into relationship with Jesus. Just say, hey, Lord, I, I know that you died for my sins, my imperfections. Just say that to yourself in your heart. 
And I want to not only be in relationship with you, but I want to learn how to rely on you so that each and everything I go through makes me a son or a daughter and, and a better image of our Father in heaven. And I'm just reminded in this moment that the cross was a literal adoption agency for those who have daddy issues. And we receive that work, finished work of, of the cross in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.